0: Welcome to this episode of Making Conversations Easier, the podcast where we speak to people who inspire us to improve our communication skills in healthcare. If you've listened before, thank you so much. If this is your first time listening, this episode, like all our podcasts, features conversations with people about how to improve our communication skills when talking with patients and their loved ones. I am your host, Winnie Ryan, and I work on the National Healthcare Communication Programme
1: in Ireland. And I'm Peter Gillen, Associate Professor of Surgery at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, a retired general surgeon and the clinical advisor to this programme. This episode brings Cathy MacDonald onto the show. Cathy is a former police officer, having served with Tayside Police, and Police Scotland for over 30 years. For much of her service, she deployed as a hostage and crisis negotiator and was responsible for training negotiators within the UK as well as international colleagues. Cathy describes her career as intense but rewarding and fulfilling. In particular, She enjoyed preparing and equipping her colleagues for the demands of hostage and crisis negotiation. Today, Cathy uses her training and experience to help others develop and improve their communication skills. In 2021, Cathy worked with the National Healthcare Communication Programme to develop a teaching workshop for communicating in emergencies. Kathy,
0: the first time that I heard you speak was in the Royal College of Physicians in Dublin in 2018. When Peter suggested that we should develop teaching materials for communicating in emergencies, I immediately thought of you. And since then, it has been our pleasure to work with you. Thank you for agreeing to be here. Peter already gave a short bio about you. But in your own words, can you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do?
2: Um, well, firstly, thank you for inviting me to, to speak with you on the podcast. Um, I suppose my world within hostage and crisis negotiation, it was demanding, it was intense, but it was incredibly rewarding. And when you're, you know, requested by a commander to come into an incident and negotiation is the preferred option for every commander because it's all to do with communication and non-tactical then it's um, an incredible position to be in. So I reflect back on all the opportunities, I suppose, and the different cases that I was involved with. And I'm really, really thankful for that. And the joy is that now, and thank you, Peter, you gave a really um, kind bio of me, but the joy is now that I can bring all of that into work with other organizations, other businesses. And that's what's brought me to yourself, Winnie, and um, I've really enjoyed working with you to date.
0: Thank you, Kathy. So. You mentioned that negotiation is the preferred option that law enforcement takes in hostage and crisis situations. How do you go about managing these types of crisis, high-stakes situations, when all you have is communication?
2: I know it sounds quite daunting, doesn't it? Um, but. If you think of it, communication is something that connects every single person on this planet and we have to be able to communicate. So within negotiation, we had a framework of communication that we used. So it was robust enough to deal with any deployment that we had, but it was flexible enough to meet the individual needs. For example, sometimes we would have fast moving, dynamic um, incidents that were maybe akin to emergencies. And then we would have slow moving. um, And while I don't wanna call a a kidnap routine in any way, the communication attached to that was routine. So the communication framework we had, had to meet our needs for every deployment. So both of these situations, then everyone in between. And so we would work on connect, understand, communicate, influence and change behavior. And it became a very tried and tested um, framework for us.
0: Thank you, Cathy. So, Cathy, you talk about communication as being slow-moving and fast-moving. And the fast-moving communication you speak about links well with emergencies in healthcare. So perhaps we could focus on the framework that you mentioned. Can you give us an example of a deployment where you used the framework in a fast-moving situation? And maybe later we can talk about what we in healthcare can take from that.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean most incidents that we attend are really fast moving at the beginning. um, And that's because they're emotionally fueled. And if we, yeah, if I wrap it around, and one that immediately jumps to mind is a domestic siege. That's how we would classify it. And the situation was um, a husband and wife at home. It was a violent exchange. The lady was harmed and she ran fearing for her life. She was injured, she came to the police. And as you'd expect a police officer attended at the house. Now, the emotional part, well, she was already highly emotional. The police attended, were immediately threatened that if they came into the house, um, the the man would uh, kill the baby that was inside, and this baby was only months old. So he was very emotional. The police officer was emotional. The mum was emotional, and the negotiators were deployed. Now, I'd be lying to say that we don't have a little knot in our belly when we deploy as well, but we've learned over the years to control that so we can focus it into managing a situation so um, long story short um, when we really needed to work with the man to connect understand communicate influence and change behavior so the first thing is connecting with him which is exceptionally difficult when he is emotional he's violent and he is very threatening so in that moment um, what I know we look at what's predictable at someone and what is unique the longer I can speak with them the bigger picture I get on how they tick But actually, um, with him, he was so emotional, I referred to a part of the framework that we use for predictable people and called core emotional concerns. I know that he's emotional for certain reasons. And my first task is to try and reduce the tension, because he cannot communicate effectively when he's emotionally high. And because his ears don't work, we don't listen effectively when we're emotional. And I suppose if I ask anyone who's listening just now just to compare their communication. A time when they were balanced in emotion and a time that they were triggered, they will realize that their pace, pitch and tone changes, their ability to listen changes, their, you know, the word choice changes. That filter that I speak about, the tact filter, will we call it, that lets us manage exactly how we convey things to each other. Well, that goes with the emotion. And what we had in this situation is that he was so emotional, he couldn't hear us. But the good thing is when we're at the receiving end of these emotional vents, because the filter is off, we receive a lot of clues as to what what this is about. So ultimately, we solved this. There was a resolution, a good resolution, because we listened to understand. We helped manage the emotion. We reduced the tension so that if you think of emotion as a seesaw, we reduced it from this seesaw that was, imbalanced at one end to a nice little equilibrium where communication can flow back and forward quite neatly. And we were able to talk it through with him. And eventually, because we had emotion in control, we were able to communicate. And at that point, I knew enough about him to use that to influence him to open the door. We managed to speak sufficiently um, and calm him sufficiently that that the baby was recovered. Um, and yeah it was a happy ending in that everybody was safe and without injury um, not so happy because he was locked up for a while um, but that's sort of how we deployed it and if you think of it from a commander's perspective the only option he had was to go in tactically with a public order team or a firearms team or and in every situation that brings in a physical harm risk so that's how we'd use the framework within that situation. That one is actually very, very fresh in my mind. I think that one will stay with me for a while.
0: Okay. Thank you for that, Cathy, and um, it sounds like um, a very emotional situation, as you said, and we're glad to hear that it worked out okay for, for the woman and her baby and I suppose the police who were involved. There's so much in what you said there. I'd like to go through some of the areas that you mentioned. So the first one is core emotional concerns. That's a term you used. And I suspect this might be a relatively new term for our listeners, Could you tell us a little bit more about this concept, please, and how it's used?
2: Sure. Core emotional concerns were the brainchild of Dan Shapiro and Roger Fisher, and they were psychologists attached to the Harvard Negotiation Project way back many decades ago. And what they uncovered is that every single person on this planet, so that's 7.9 billion people, all need to feel five things in order to be emotionally content. That seesaw I spoke about, that balance, having the balance so communication flows back and forward neatly. We need five things to be balanced in life. And if we have them, well, life is peachy. And the the, the neat thing about core emotional concerns is that we don't only just need them, but we migrate to environments and to people who provide core emotional concern stability for us. So taking it back to that incident, I maintained core emotional concern stability for that gentleman and it made him want to work with me even though actually he said many things that suggested he didn't want to. So core emotional concerns would it help if I went through what each of them were winning maybe in a little bit of detail maybe give an example.
0: That would be great thanks Kathy.
2: Sure well number one is appreciation every single person needs to feel valued and appreciated for what they do and for that to be recognized by the people they'd expect to recognize it so even within a work situation we need to know that what we do is recognized we need a thank you now and then it's lovely when somebody rewards us with a you know a positive appraisal it's it's um we need to feel that maybe people make time for us all of these things build into feeling of being valued and appreciated and if if that's the case, then we are happy and we're stable. So in every situation where emotion is high, even the fast moving emergency ones, what can be said and done that actually makes people feel valued and appreciated that they have a particular, you know, that what they're doing is valued. The next one is autonomy. We have to have a feeling of being in control. We need to know that we have a freedom of speech, a freedom to do what we would expect to do that we're not being trapped or cornered and actually i'm going to highlight this one because the emergency situation normally it's the control that's triggered because as professionals we like things to run a particular way the way that we are used to the way that our procedures and practice run and as soon as emergency comes in actually adds emotion into the into the into the mix and it takes that little bit of control out and what you might find even self-reflecting is when we, our emotion changes in emergency, it's maybe because we don't feel that we're in control anymore. Mm-hmm. Number three is affiliation. We need to feel a sense of belonging, that we can be around people that we trust and that we can be vulnerable with. And vulnerability is not weak. Vulnerability, I mean, is honest and open and you can basically trust those people. We need that in order to feel content and happy. Number four is our role. We need a purpose in life, a purpose each day, um, a job to do, if you think of it. We need to know that we're working towards something um, and that we're not, if you think of a day where you've had a really busy experience, you go home and you you think, I didn't achieve a single thing. There's a feeling of unease about us, isn't there, where you think I've been busy all day and I have nothing to show for it. Mm -hmm. Compare that to a busy day when we get a whole load of things ticked off our to-do list we've actually just achieved some things we have goals that have been met and it makes us feel very content so we need we need a purpose we need a role and we need a task to do and then finally a status and that means that unconditional positive regard says that each of us matter to each other it's not what we do it's who we are the fact fact that i am perfectly imperfect I think that's probably a nice phrase to say, I'm imperfect, but knowing that I'm accepted for being that imperfected me um, is really important. So there you have in summary, five things that we all need. And then you can become creative and how you fulfill that in each other. And if we take it back to that situation, I had five little tactics that I could immediately use, even though I didn't know this gentleman. I knew he needed to feel valued and appreciated and connected and in control. He needed a purpose and he needed to feel important for who he is without judgment. And that is where the, uh, the magic of the core emotional concerns comes in. You can adapt it to every area of life, work, social and at home.
0: Thank you, Kathy. So just to go over those again, there are five core emotional concerns, appreciation, autonomy, affiliation, role and status. And if these are balanced, then we're happy. Emotion is balanced and communication can flow. But if any of these is out of balance, then it impacts on communication. So our role is to find out which one is out of balance and then to do or say something is it to try and balance those again.
2: Yeah. And sometimes I speak about being like buckets. If you imagine each of these core emotional concerns is a bucket full of water. Every time we're challenged in any one of them, the bucket empties. Mm -hmm. We actually are quite good at filling our own buckets because we have coping mechanisms that are tried and tested through our experience, but sometimes they don't stand us very well. And these buckets can be filled by somewhere else. So for him, his buckets were emptied because of the domestic situation. I was never going to be able to repair and fill the buckets with the same stuff that had emptied them, but I could em- fill them with some other things such as kind words, genuinely listening. The biggest way to fulfill someone's core emotional concerns is to listen, to understand and really try to get where they're coming from. So that's how we So yeah, we balance it out.
0: Okay, great. Thank you, Cathy. And I'm sure all our listeners who maybe work in healthcare are thinking about how they might apply them, but what are your thoughts on how we might apply or use the core emotional concerns in healthcare, particularly, I suppose, in high emotion situations like emergencies?
2: Well, I think first, emergencies are emotional for everybody involved and managing uh, your core emotional concerns is one way of bringing tension down. So if you think of in maternity, um, a couple coming in and they're really, really worried and suddenly a whole load of very experienced, very skilled people start rushing around them with no explanation, mm-hmm. they are going to change emotionally because they don't feel in control, they don't feel valued or appreciated, they maybe suddenly become a commodity and um, having baby arrive safely is a thing or a task for the team. But in amongst it all, you have two people who could really work well with you if they felt they were connected to your team and be part of it. But I would think if you can just remember to make them feel appreciated, it only takes a word, you know, it only takes a little tap on the shoulder or to say, actually, Dad, we're going to be busy with this. But if you can do this, this and this and give him a task, for example, that fulfills his need to be involved and to have a role. There are a number of things that you can do, particularly within an emergency, that will help keep people's emotion in check. And when that happens, then you can communicate and then you can do your job more effectively. Did I explain that coherently, Winnie? Did that make sense?
0: It does, absolutely. And particularly thinking about our patients and people coming into a hospital environment, certainly um, autonomy is a core emotional concern that you can, is easy to understand how that would, would be impacted. So Kathy, you've told us when you were talking about the domestic violence scenario, you mentioned that people are both predictable and yet unique. So negotiators, you've told us, use the core emotional concerns to help you understand what's predictable about every person on the planet. What do you use from the framework that helps you work out what is unique?
2: I suppose a good analogy is to say that we all Are in our own bubble. And I'd like your listeners to think about the day they're born, they're born into a bubble. And no one else is ever going to be in that bubble with them. It's transparent, it's clear, we can see and we can hear through it, but they're in that bubble on their own. And every single life experience shapes that bubble. So by the time you get to our stage in life, we have quite a good, complex, and layered bubble going on. And in summary, everything within that bubble is down to what we value in life what we believe in, what we need and what we want. Now, the need is actually within there as our core emotional concern. So our predictable stuff is within that bubble as well. But all the other stuff, how do we work that out? The more we listen to someone to genuinely understand, the more we pick up clues about what their unique bubble is. So for this gentleman in the, um, in the, the domestic violence situation I I don't know his world I really don't I've not you know walked his in his footsteps he's the only one who understands his world and therefore if I take time to understand where he's coming from and listen for the clues that tells me about what he values beliefs needs and wants mm-hmm. I'll actually get a very accurate quite often pick um, quite often exceptionally accurate picture of what is important to him and when I have that I can then find the communication that connects to him and we have that affiliation connection coming in so the unique stuff is the 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 unique path that we've all walked no one else can get us and i'm sometimes asked why do people say what they say and do what they do particularly if it doesn't sit well with someone they'll say why why on earth do they say that why do they do that well for them and their bubble it must make sense and it, uh, why do people say what they say and do what they do? Because they can and because it works. Mm-hmm. They're able to say it or do it, and it must work for them. And if we can work out, well, what do they get from this? What does he get from causing violence to his wife? What does he get from these threats? If we can work that out, we can then, as part of a little puzzle that we can unravel, and taking it back into the world of medicine, why do people say what they say and do what they do, whether that is colleagues, whether it's other stakeholders, external, internal, whether it's our patients. Well, because they can and because it works for them. In their bubble, that makes complete sense. So try not to judge, just try to listen to understand. And then you will find kindness comes out and communicating with kindness takes you a long, long way.
0: Yes, in healthcare, not just with our patients and with families, but also with each other. So, what I'm hearing there, Cathy, is that um, a lot of the skills are about trying to understand the other person's perspective. Mm. Core emotional concerns are a shortcut that we can use because they help us to understand what's predictable. But in order to really understand the other person's perspective, we have to connect with them first so they'll talk to us and then listen to them so we can work out. What makes them tick? And I think you mentioned was it values, beliefs, needs, and wants. That's what you're trying to work out by listening.
2: Winnie, you capture this beautifully. Thank you so much. You've got that concise, just to the point. Fabulous.
0: Lovely. Thank you, Cathy.
1: Cathy, emergencies in healthcare, by their nature, are unexpected and unpredictable. How do we ensure communication flows in such stressful environments?
2: Um, I think it comes back down to the emotion, Peter, every single time. The difference between a routine procedure and an emergency one is the urgency, and that urgency brings emotion in everyone. As health professionals, the same as police professionals, we are skilled, we're experienced, we're trained, but actually we're also human beings, and the human being thing should never be knocked out of us, but it does mean that we have this emotion coming in. So i think first of all recognizing that emotion is present that it is going to impact on our communication that it's going to impact on our listening and in fact the higher the emotion is the less effective communication will be so i think recognizing that first and foremost is important and then grabbing it and making emotion work for you um a lot of that comes from practice doesn't it from training and uh, scenarios you practice over and over and over again in order to to have some normality about it so that the emotion is balanced so I think um managing emotion is going to be the key thing Um, and core emotional concerns allow it practice allows it and then there's a whole load of other tactics other you know that we hear from other professionals breathing grounding ourselves, and so on but, but right back to your, your question about, yeah, emotion is massively important in emergency.
1: Lovely. Cathy, um, is there anything that we can do then beforehand to prepare us for what might be ahead in an emergency situation?
2: Sure, well, one of the tactics we used within our framework was that we liked no surprises. Wherever possible, we created a no surprise environment for everyone because we actually didn't want people to act on emotion. It was okay when they talked about emotionally because they gave us a lot of clues that actually saved quite a lot of time, but we didn't want people to act on emotion. So what we would do is we would think about scenarios that are likely to happen. And in the same way as you prepare practically for these scenarios, we'd also practice our communication. So within healthcare, um, I would imagine that you will practice over and over and over again, a potential emergency procedure. If you took the same theory into the communication, what can you practice over and over and over again about the communication attached to that? And we had a very particular um, tactic called a bunch of fives, where if we had, and I'll give you another um, uh, example, if you wish. If we had, for example, a hostage situation, we could reasonably expect that at some point we're going to get a phone call demanding a ransom Um, with the threat that if that ransom isn't received, there will be violence or death to the the kidnapped person. We don't wait until that threat comes in to react. We actually sit as a team and we plan that in advance. We'll say, okay, if it comes in through this threat, how are we going to respond to it? And we call it a bunch of fives because we don't just want one answer. We actually want to practice a few different ones so that we eventually have a little Bundle of different ways that we can respond to an incident. And if you can practise communication in that way, it means that when it does happen, you feel that you've been there before, you control your own emotion and you're less likely to give an emotive reaction. And so there we are. I would say it's exactly the same as if you were going for an interview. You wouldn't wait and just rock up for an interview and then hope to answer the questions correctly. You would anticipate what's coming your way and you'd probably practise three or four different answers. It's exactly the same concept, and it worked very, very well for us.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a terrific answer. Thanks very much. That's really helpful. In my experience, Cathy, not everyone performs well in a crisis. So what do you advise when approaching that individual, say, after the event, during the debrief?
2: Something we used was a, a, a two different debriefs. We would do what we called a hot debrief where we would capture everybody's key feelings at the end of, a, a for us, an incident, a deployment. We'd say, right, okay, that's it done. What is the immediate feelings of everyone? And you would get that emotional reaction if somebody was unhappy with the way someone else had worked or really happy about you know, recovering someone. You would get that hot emotional response. And then we would have a debrief, um, a, a more reflective one later on, And we found that it was really important to capture both elements because the emotional part we'd miss once we go to reflective. Mm -hmm. And in the moment, it's too quick to get the reflective. So I think it's really important to um, have these debriefs and have them in a way that is open and honest, that it's not judgmental. And within negotiation, we're very, very lucky that we were able to do that. It was what happened? Why did it happen? And would we do anything differently? Um, and that kept it we we're able to review the good stuff the bad stuff and the ugly stuff if we take it to you know that that snapshot of um description
1: yeah i, I really like that uh, idea of the, the hot and the cold debrief if you like yeah to allow for mm-hmm. reflection that, that's uh, that's excellent what would you say to staff who say look the end justifies the means you know the patient survived didn't they so what's all the fuss about but, but we know, don't we, that patients can feel very traumatized by having gone through the event. So what would your response be to that, Cathy?
2: Well, I think, and I'm going to say this without meaning to be um, judgmental or um, um, uh, critical, but having that idea is a bit blind. You know, it, it, you're basically blindfolded with that. And if I take you back, before we come back to the emergency one, if I take you back to the incident um, that I described right at the beginning, the commander had options to recover that baby. And his options were he could have immediately put in a firearms or public order team. And the ends would have met, you know, he would have got the baby out alive. But actually, there would have been damage to other people. There would have been harm. And if that commander sat on his laurels and said, but the baby was alive, we don't have to worry about anything else then I'm afraid there'll be a lot of litigation coming his way and a lot of people not wanting to work with them. And we've also got to continue and work with other people and maybe even the same people again, then they have long memories. So they use the the, the negotiators for a non-tactical deployment because actually the journey is as important as the end result. So if we take that back into the medical world, um, uh, something you have shared with me before is that what happens when a baby, you know, a baby arrives, but mum has gone through a traumatic experience? To think that that doesn't matter is a bit blinkered, and will bring you future problems. It'll bring problems for that family immediately. Um, they may not want to have family again. They may not want to go through the experience again, and they may actually be very critical. And you may even have litigation and things ahead of you. Whereas actually, if a, a few well-placed words and genuine consideration could maybe save you a, a a lot of grief um, and it's an investment isn't it yeah an investment having appropriate communication for every situation and even the ability to say sorry when it doesn't quite work I mean that goes a long way in itself
1: yeah absolutely and I love that concept of the journey being as important as the as the end so I, I think that's a great concept to take with us Th- thanks very much Kathy.
0: Thank you, Cathy. And there's so much in what you have said in our podcast today. I'm going to try to summarize the main points. If I leave anything out, um, please uh, remind our listeners at the end. And also, we will put a summary of the main points into our show notes. So you spoke to us about the framework that you use in hostage and crisis negotiation. There are three elements to this. First you connect with the person, then you listen so you can understand where they're coming from. And only then you start to communicate with them. You speak about communication as being slow moving and routine um, or fast moving like in an emergency. And the framework applies to both of those situations. When communication is fast moving, we know that there's a lot of emotion there. And we know that when, I think you said, when emotion is high, communication cannot flow because if the other person is emotional like the man you spoke about in the domestic violence scenario if his emotion is very high then he's not going to hear anything that the policeman or the negotiator is saying to him so our work is to balance the emotion and we do this using the five core emotional concerns that you spoke about because they're predictable in every person but also then listening so that we can discover what is unique And I love what you said there. I think it's a great line. Why do people say what they say and do what they do? Um, Because we, we all run into difficulties with, you know, our family members or with colleagues, even patients that we meet when people behave in a certain way or say certain things. Why do they do that? I think you said it's because they can and because it works for them. So I suppose that's all about listening to discover what their perspective is. Also, though, I think you said when emotion is high, this can be useful for us in a way because this tact filter that you mentioned comes off. (laughs) So it's a shortcut. I love that. I'm going to use that at home with my husband and with my children. So when emotion is high, the tact filter is gone and you save a lot of time because you can hear what's really important to the person if you're listening to them at that time. In communication, in emotional situations, what we're going to want to do is to balance the emotion, reduce the tension, so then communication can flow. Yourself and Peter talked um, about preparation, preparing for the emergency situations, and you mentioned, I think, practicing, and we call that simulation in our in our workshops. And that the reason that it's important, you said, is because you're practicing different ways of, of maybe dealing with a particular situation. So you have a number of responses to something that might go on, but also it helps you, because you've gone through it, I suppose, a dry run, it helps to control your emotion when it actually does happen, when you're in the, the real life emotional emergency situation. You spoke to Peter about debriefs, Kathy also, so you have the hot and the cold. The hot is where you get the emotion, and it's very important to get that at the time directly after the emergency has happened. And then you have the cold, which is more reflective, which is the one you take the learning from, I think. And yourself and Peter spoke about the journey, I as well suppose, as in emergency situations. And in healthcare, we're always looking to get the patient to a certain point, deliver the baby, or so on. But it's important for us in healthcare to remember that the journey, how we communicate with our patients and women during the emergency, and our colleagues, I suppose, as well, is as important as the end result. That was my summary. Kathy, is there anything else that I've left out or that you want to add there? Not
2: beautifully done, Winnie. I'm so impressed that you have that ability to capture everything. (laughs) It's
0: such a concise way. Thank you for that. You make it very easy, Kathy. So we end all of our podcasts by asking our guests to name the communication skill that they found most useful. And since today's topic has been about emergencies and core emotional concerns perhaps we could ask you to leave us with your top tip or tips um, for communicating in emergency situations
2: i think first and foremost is recognizing that emotion is present and that it actually needs managed in order to you know allow communication to go and it's okay it's human it's normal Uh, no judgment should be attached to that and we actually have different emotional um uh, levels so some people will be more emotional than others. So first of all, recognize emotion is normal and, you know, accept it. The next is practice and plan and practice and plan for communication in the same way as you practice and plan for the actual physical um, incidents that happen um, and then maybe moving on to the debrief is just being open to differences and being curious rather than, you know, defensive or blame, you know, or, um, or, or, or placing blame just that appropriate curiosity to say, how come? How did that all happen? So there we go. That's my top tips for emergencies.
1: Thanks, Cathy. Winnie and I really enjoyed talking with you today. We touched on a lot of important areas in relation to improving our skills for communicating in emergencies. If people wanted to reach out to you, how can they get in touch?
2: And probably the best way is just through my website. It's the W's and then Artofcommunication.co.uk. And from there they'd be able to email, connect to the um, social media platforms and things as well. So I think that's probably the quickest and easiest way.
0: That's great, Kathy. And all that information will be in the show notes for our listeners. Well, Kathy, it was great to chat and thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thank
2: you so much for inviting me and uh, yeah, yeah, for capturing all I've said in such a great way, Winnie, and to yourself, Peter. Thank you.
0: Thanks too to our listeners for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Making Conversations Easier. Until next time, Sloan Gafol.